This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We are back. Plato's K, film criticism. This is our first show of 2016. My name is Thomas Caldwell, and it is absolutely lovely to be back in the studio again with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, and Alexandra Heller. Nicholas, happy new year sometime midway through February to all of you. Hello. 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 Is it me you're looking for? <laughs> that was beautiful. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're going to use tonight's show to try to catch up as much as possible on some of the stuff that has been released since we went off air midway through December last year. We're not going to cover absolutely everything, but we've kind of selected a bunch of films that more than one of us have seen and we think have things about them that are worth discussing. And they're still screening. And they're still screening, yeah. Um, I mean, so we're not going to do in-depth reviews of them all like we normally do, but we're going to touch on some of the issues that have arisen around these films. And in general, um, this is going to be a fairly unplanned, slightly chaotic show, but I, I think we're going to get some very interesting discussion happening because there has been a lot of interesting discussion around a lot of films and and film and Hollywood in in general over the past couple of months. So look, I'm going to stop babbling and we need to get into the first film. Let's go all the way back to mid-December. The film that at the time it seemed like everybody was talking about, I'm almost somewhat reluctant to to join into that conversation because it should be dead and buried, but let's address Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Do we have anything left to be said about this film that hasn't been said already? Do we have anyone amongst us whose opinion of it shifted dramatically from first <laughs> to second viewing? Hmm, I wonder. Everyone's <laughs> looking at me. What was the deal? Yeah, this, but this is interesting, Josh, because you almost did a 180. It wasn't a complete 180. It was more of a 150. But you, you really <laughs> weren't into this when you saw it and then changed somewhat. And actually, I'll qualify that by saying I probably did something similar in that I was really into it and then 24 hours later I was shrugging my shoulders. So I'm interested to hear about your journey, first of all. Well, I have set a nasty precedent now, which I'm somewhat regretting because now every time I, I dislike a film or I'm not impressed, people will say, as they have been already, oh, you need to see it again like you did with Star Wars. Um, so, yeah, I saw it opening night. I wasn't impressed. The nostalgia didn't work on me. I thought the lack of character building really didn't pull me in. I wasn't taken in by it and I, and I reached that point within the film, probably about halfway, where you just fixate on the faults and then when you when you're out of an, out of a film like Star Wars and you're not experiencing the joy and you're aware that many other people in the audience are I think that's a really difficult position for a, a viewer and a critic and then I spent the next day listening to everyone gush about how it's amazing how JJ Abrams has you know re-enlivened popular culture like the hyperbole around this film was incredible so I thought okay look two days later I went and saw it again just to kind of give it a second chance and I was taken in a little bit more by it. I, I'd like to say I, I softened dramatically. I still don't think it's as amazing as some of the hyperbole around it. But yeah, I look, it's a shameless nostalgia pull. I think the construction of the film has been dictated to quite clearly by business decisions and marketing and an attempt to bring audiences back to the style of the original trilogy, which makes sense financially. It doesn't necessarily mean it's still a great film. What I noticed about my reaction from seeing it and then thinking about it the next day was that, and I can't think of a film where this has happened more overtly, but it was the experience of seeing this film that night, which I loved. And it was so exciting. As a kid who was obsessed with Star Wars and was so let down by those prequels, as was everybody, um, I was really caught up in the moment. And all the shameless, nostalgic bits, all the not just references to the classic trilogy, but 
almost directly replicating that original film, I was swept away in it. It wasn't until the next day I realised I don't ever want to bother watching that film again. All it did was hark back to the nostalgia to get us all back on board and then set up a bunch of other characters for the franchise that's going to spawn out into the universe, apparently after we're all dead. They've said this story (laughs) won't be resolved in your lifetime. Um, And I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed the shameless nostalgia, even though there was something a little bit shallow, manipulative uh, uh, about it. J.J. Abrahams does do that well. I think his reboot of Star Star Trek was a lot smarter and a lot more interesting. Um, And I really enjoyed the new characters that were set up. I I liked all the new characters they brought into this series, but only in the sense that I'm excited to see what they do in the next film. This film on its own, I think... It's an experience to, 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 to have to get you back up to speed. I don't think there's much in it as a film itself. I'm bewildered that people are seeing this three, four or five times. More, Professional yeah. film critics. And I just think, hand your card back in because this is a... Well, no, that's, that's being nasty, Ow. isn't it? But um, No, there was a lot of... Yeah, yeah. There was, the reaction to this film was, I think, worth mentioning that this and some other, other ones I'm sure we're going to talk about tonight did seem to raise this issue of you can't criticise this film. This seemed to be... Mm. It's another... No, this is not a poor independent film that you know we should be taking care of. This is a multi-billion dollar franchise and it seemed to be critic proof in terms of other critics attacking other critics mm. for being open to criticism about this film in terms of structure and storytelling, the use of nostalgia and many other issues, race, gender and so on. And I thought that is really bizarre and what have we come to as as a race of critics if this is if this is if Star Wars is the film that is apparently we you know off off the cards. What did you think of it all, Cerise? I saw it just the once, so I have not had any great shifting feelings about it. I enjoyed it on a, on a very superficial level when I, I saw it, and I think that's the level that was going to always pander to me on anyway. It was entirely trying to uh, appeal to my nostalgia of uh, someone of my generation. Of course, I saw the original way back when, and I, I was immediately familiar with the, the direct lifts from that first film. But look, I admired that it... It had uh, a female protagonist, which is clearly um, a, a big thing, that a man of colour was also extremely central to the narrative. And this all feels very positive and very now, and um, this is laudable. Um, and I was quite pleased to see things like just the, the old um, Kurosawa wipe employed as uh, as often as it used to be in those first three films. I can't really remember whether it was in the prequels because I just tuned out of them altogether. In fact, I don't even think I saw episodes two and three. Uh, yeah, look, it's, it, but really, uh, I'm not going to dwell on this film any longer. I doubt I'll ever see it again. It's just this whole sort of thing isn't that interesting to me now. Yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm, I'm similar to you. But, but I, that two hours of watching that film for that time in that packed cinema of people loving it, I had a magnificent time. Except for me. Yeah, <laughs> except for Josh. We, 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 we were sitting apart, thank God. I think this is, think this is really fascinating because I didn't, I didn't grow up with Star Wars. It was just one of those things that I missed as a kid. So I have no kind of emotional investment in it. I haven't seen it. I'm not opposed to it. I don't think it's terrible. I just don't have that kind of historical investment in it. Um, but watching other people talk about it and watching small children playing in parks with sticks. I mean, these are children that haven't seen the film. The way that it's a kind of cultural and the way that you guys are talking about it, it's, it's really almost, it's, it's film critic proof because we're not really talking about film. I mean, it's, it's this kind of, like you said, it's a phenomena that's centred around a film object. Yep. But there's so much more at stake here. 
than, than, than quote-unquote cinema. It kind of has a similar function to Creed, actually, in that there is a nostalgia to bring it back to, to where we want it to be and then going forward in a new way. And I think the big difference is no one was, was expecting Creed to be good and I think people had a huge amount of faith in this being you know, at least on the, on a level of, of of decent. So, um, I think it's interesting how that they're, they're films that have a very very similar function, but the outcome has been quite different. And I'm in this weird position where I like Star Wars so much more because that's what I grew up with. But I think Creed's probably the film with more longevity and probably the better film objectively, even if I don't personally think it's the better film, which is a weird thing to say. Oh yeah, well I'm completely. You know, <laughs> well, I'm you, hark back to you last year's reviews of Creed. Creed. Yeah. Team Creed over uh, here. Yeah, for yeah. me, for me, the key difference, just very briefly, is that I don't think Creed panders to nostalgia in the way that that The Force Awakens does. It, it certainly nods to it. It's there in, in, in nods, but not remakes. Exactly. Yeah. It's not a case of it's just taken set pieces from the first three, four, five Rocky films and kind of stuck them together. It's doing something I think quite different. Well, let's move on to Joy. We've got a couple of Boxing Day films we're going to look at. Wasn't a good Boxing Day this year, was it? There weren't many films, I, I would say, of interest. So we've just picked, I think, the two more interesting ones. And one was Joy, David O. Russell's film, at once more giving Jennifer Lawrence a leading role. He's been a real champion of hers. And it's this is a kind of feel-good rags-to-riches film, completely betrayed by the marketing, really weird advertising that suggested it was going to be in a similar vein to American Hustle, his previous film and it's it's a sort of vaguely based on a true story rag to riches film it's quite simplistic but david o russell of recent has been really good i think at doing straightforward genre films in a really um i don't know sophisticated is the right word but they're just really well constructed i actually really enjoyed joy an awful lot more than i have any of his other films of, of recent years well with this one I, the main image i saw before seeing the film was of jennifer lawrence toting a gun yeah and i, I just imagine maybe this is going to be some sort of uh, revenge thriller with an ironic title and uh instead it's a, a story very much pulled from fact about a woman who made her fortune uh battling the odds battling uh gender uh, expectations in an unhelpful family in order to to make a yeah, a fortune out of mops and um not she, just she mops the a mop. miracle mop well, Show some respect. some respect. My goodness, Cerise. Hail to the mop. The miracle mop. <laughs> I was really hoping you were going to say the shaker weight there, but anyway, <laughs> but I didn't see it, so... Well, this, this had me actually quite confounded and ultimately really enjoyed it, not least because Robert De Niro actually had a good role for a change. He didn't seem to be slumming it in this. How long have you always dreamt of Isabella Rossellini and Robert De Niro being a couple in film? Or was that just me? Yeah. Oh, and really? and, and fairly Amazing. Dis- yeah, and they're quite dislikable characters, too. Really the, the ugly. Film. That's that nicely. With the Scorsese backstory and mm-hmm. history of between the two of them, three of them. Mm, interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm, scandal. Ooh. Sorry. Okay. Well, what, did, what did you think <laughs> Back of Joy? I'm going to be the curmudgeon this week, I think. I had a really hard time with Joy. I'm, I'm conscious <laughs> that I'm not. <laughs> I'm not conscious that I don't, I don't want to dismiss this film as somehow. Um, inconsequential because it's about a woman who invented a mop. Um, there's obviously gender stuff there that's not, that not cool. <laughs> but it is. It's about Joy Mangano. To me, it felt like a vanity, like an, a, an A-list uh, a TV movie vanity project. I mean, the, the cast are... Im- just immaculate. I mean, it's a remarkable cast, remarkable performance. Um, Jennifer Lawrence, we've mentioned. Virginia Madsen deserves a shout-out. She was incredible in this film. That was... And I just... 
take extreme pleasure in seeing her back in film. I love her screen presence. But this really just felt like a TV movie to me. And at one point, I knew that I was having a bad time because I started getting really upset about the rewriting of mop history (laughs) that was taking place before my eyes. So the deal with the miracle mop. I'm going to get into this, so you're going to have to stick with me. I can't believe you know this. (laughs) uh, Continue. Like the miracle mop, the whole thing, early 90s and... Joe Mangano uh, was one of the first people on, what do they call those, infomercial channels, yep. the, the yep. shopping network. And she was one of the first people that wasn't a celebrity selling her invention. She's a single mum. Things are tough. She invents this mop. The idea is that you can squeeze it down and you don't get your hands wet. You don't get broken glass. My grandmother had a mop. You remember those rectangle mops that you did that with? That's not, well, this is not a miracle. <laughs> what is so miraculous about the miracle mop? I'm, Something I just, to do with enzymes. I, I think, had Alex. doubts. It's, it's I had doubts deeply, about the actual the use of the word miracle in the miracle mop story. So this for me became the the mop movie. This is an historical accuracy problem. I, you had. I also have really major problems with <laughs> Rasputin by Boney M and the historical accuracies <laughs> in that song. So I'm just putting that out there. This is perhaps turning just as um, the last film, Josh, was more about therapy for you. I do realise that this has taken a kind of twist where we're now not talking about the film and my broken brain. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Mop drop. Uh, Joy is on. Mop drop. (laughs) If you do want to catch Joy, it's still on. It's on very limited release. One, maybe two screens. uh, But it's still out there through 20th Century Fox. I meant to mention that Star Wars The Force Awakens is still on absolutely everywhere through Walt Disney Studios. Another film that came out on Boxing Day was Suffragette, a film that arrived in Australia with a lot of background controversy before the film even opened. And I don't know how deep you want to go into that, but I, I don't know if that background controversy framed the film in a fair way. I, on its own, really enjoyed the film. Well, what did you think of it, Cerise? Uh, I felt it told the story in a way that was entirely... Uh, in accord with my expectations. Yeah. Uh, I know this controversy, this is to do with whitewashing. Is so, it so the controversy, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah. I, I, sh- I shouldn't introduce it in this kind of ambiguous way. Suffragette's a film about the, the suffragette movement in the early 20th century in England, and the film is very specific at the start, saying it's about one group of women, a working-class group of women who had some connections with the middle class, and it's specifically about them, and the accusation was it's whitewashed all the people of colour who were involved. Yeah. By, by excluding them from the film. Yeah, they're not even there as extras in crowd scenes. No. Um, though they did make a, an effort to put at least a token man or two in those crowd scenes, I noticed, because they sort of stuck out. Um, this actually ties in with a really uh, awkward question about, you know, if they had have at least introduced, an, even if it was just an extra, does this is, does that smack too much of tokenism? I mean, how do you ever get I think that it would balance have, yeah. right? And so... It's, um, it's, it's, this is going to be an issue to address for years to come, I think, until we, until we enter some sort of critical utopia whereby we can't help but uh, even fail to notice the wonderful diversity that's populating every single film we ever see. This will never happen, folks. See, no. my feeling is there is a huge general problem with whitewashing history in Hollywood cinema, but I think it's so unfortunate this was the film that got picked on because if you want to look at historical films that whitewash, there are so many to choose from. Also, there is an argument that the, the black population of England did not become as large as it did until after World War Two, which is after this film. There were there were people of colour involved in this movement. There were also Australians. There were also Irish. You can't cover them all. I feel like it's saying a Holocaust film has done the wrong thing by focusing on what happened to 
a percentage of Jewish people rather than acknowledging all the other people who are persecuted. And we can, we can even talk about contemporary films. I mean, nobody's making these accusations at things like Spotlight or The Big Short or, 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 or Carol, films set far later, which also are completely white. I think what's happening with Suffragette is it's a film made by a woman about women and because it hasn't done everything for everybody, it's been torn to shreds, not just by conservatives, but by people who are progressives, who are supposed to be excited about a film that says women shouldn't politely ask for power, they should demand it. And they've pounced on this film because it hasn't done absolutely everything for everybody. And I think it's a weird self-sabotage that's happening with progressive movements at the moment about... And it's almost competitive self-righteousness. We're not being inclusive or subversive enough. I think it's so unfortunate this was the film that got pounced on. And I, I swear, I, yeah, I feel it's because it's a film about women. That's why it got pulled up. Well, I do think you're under something there, but this certainly won't be the only film to get pulled up for it in future either. But um, I, I don't feel as strongly about this film as you do because it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I still found it quite a middling sort of a narrative. There are moments there to stir the heartstrings, but, uh, and I'll always adore Carrie Mulligan. But uh, the, the rest of it all felt very, it's very linear, it's very by numbers to me. We, we, there's a beginning and kind of an end point. I have to admit the end was, uh, there's no spoilers, I think, in talking about what happens as the credits roll. But the statistics that roll in, as part of the credits are eye-opening. And to learn that the suffragette movement had no significant victories in places like Switzerland until about 1971, I think it was, mm. just ab- actually gobsmacked me much more than anything within the film proper. I didn't even see the end of this film, not because I really loathed it or detested it. Um, it Carrie Mulligan again, like, you know, what do you, what do you got to complain about? Come on. I, it just felt like you've, like you've said, Cerise, and that it really was, it kind of is what it said on the packet. And I, I really admire the fact that there, there is this broader attempt to write the first wave of feminism back into feminist history. And I think that that has a really important uh, function politically just in terms of my own my own personal politics um i think that that this idea of saying feminism has history particularly with internet feminism which is in a real it's just got it's just got its undies in a twist with this whole intersectionality thing because internet feminism dominant internet feminism i I, as plural as it is you know it's it's so so fractured and i think that the dominant internet kind of mode of feminism is very very white and there's a real backlash against that kind of lack of intersectionality that all being said while i admire the fact that it was trying you know that there is this effort to say you know what feminism has been around for a really long time it has its history it involves different people from different places and it's a kind of plural narrative this film just felt really super didactic to me um i i admire its efforts for trying to write this story in i started watching it and i thought you know i i kind of know i don't really need to watch it i i don't think it's terrible um, I just, it's just something that I don't, I, I acknowledge that it exists and I acknowledge that it's doing this kind of work, it's trying to do this important cultural work, but it's not for me. Yeah, I think, it's, and that's perfectly reasonable, but I think for the audience it's aimed at, it does a remarkable job of bringing this to light. Yeah, and I think yeah. that I'd definitely pack a bong for this film for trying to, can you say that on radio? Sure. <laughs> like, I, I pack a bong for Suffragette for trying to, just to <laughs> even remind people that there was a first wave of feminism, let alone a second wave. I don't think this is a real stoner movie, actually, <laughs> Alex. I it's is not, that my, what I was doing it's not my idea of a head <laughs> film at all. Suffragette is a limited release. It's still screened in a handful of cinemas uh, through transmission films. Let's turn our attention now to... Let's, we're into January now. Let's look at one of the big, big Oscar contenders. This is The Revenant. Alejandro G. Inuit, who... 
<laughs> in Uitu, that's terrible. And he's just put the G in the middle of the name now. Gonzalez. Yeah, well, he, uh, I can say that one. That's the one he abbreviated. Alejandro Gonzalez in Uitu. Uh, but the director who, this time last year, I was raving about Birdman. I'm sure you were as, as, as well, Josh. Yep. I was very excited about this film. Did it live up to your expectations? Uh, look, I was strangely not taken in by the pre-publicity for this film, so I went in with fairly middling expectations. I saw it a few weeks after release, and I was really impressed. I think it's a really solid genre film with wonderful style. This is a film shot by... Is it Emmanuel Lubezki? Now I'm doing it, Thomas. Sorry, Lubezki. Lubezki. Oh, don't call it Sorry, Thomas. <laughs> I take that back. That was very unfair. I'm just as bad. No, it's completely fair. Lubezki. <laughs> Lubezki. It's completely fair. Lubezki is, is catnip for my eyes. I think, you know, I, yes. I, I just kind of get lost. I mean, it's no secret that one of the reasons I love Malick's recent work is because of his cinematography. Mm. But, you know, this if, if I'm being completely honest, this is Frontier First Blood. This is this could have been Stallone traipsing through the kind of the hills in Frontier era um, America and, you know, revenge narrative on the side and kind of, you know, survival um, narrative. So, look, you know, I think you if, you if you accept the narrative as that and it's not doing anything utterly complex or, or radical or subversive necessarily, I think it's just a damn stylish beautifully shot well acted across the board you know, genre film and look I think it, I think that's what he set out to do and I think for me it, it met those goals I think there were indications though in the film they were trying to do something a bit more spiritual and the kind of almost Jim Jamoosh dead man type this journey represents some kind of metaphysical journey and that's what sort of lost me during the film's very long running time I love the look of it I thought the first 20 minutes or so was absolutely astonishing and I thought this is going to be my favourite film of the year and it kind of lost me as it went and, and maybe it's because of my expectations and by the time it was finished I sort of had a feeling of oh is that it? But I think if I go, if I was to see it again and just say this is a you know a survivalist genre film, I think I might be far more into it. Yeah, look, I think the spiritual stuff was for me. I kind of put it down to window dressing. Yeah, it, the, the biggest shame for me is the last ninety seconds. This is a film that has a perfect final shot, which is the blood on the snow. This is not a spoiler. Blood on the snow tableau, which is just for me is a wonderful, wonderfully ambiguous image, and I think captures some of the politics that Inaritu sort of gestures towards during the film. And then it it goes too far and in fact breaks the fourth wall with the the final shot which for me was really heavy-handed and not unnecessary yeah, right. in terms yep. of what he'd done up until that point so maybe it's really picky to complain about the last 90 seconds of a film but for me that was really my only major major issue with it Alex, I think as a, as far as your phrase, Thomas, the, is is that it? I mean that that very much kind of framed my um my experience with this film. I wrote an article about it for Overland um, that very I very directly wanted to say wasn't a review on the film. I don't really like, I don't really enjoy this director's films. I don't think they're terrible, but they're not really my thing. I, I didn't really like Bird, Birdman. Birdman, yep. Um, I, I don't deny that he's a remarkable craftsman. They just I just don't connect with them. I don't take much pleasure from them. So I didn't expect to see this film, but there's a whole broader um, kind of discourse at work with The Revenant that actually has very little to do with the film itself, I think, which um, in film critic circles was very gendered and very ugly and very nasty, where a number of male film critics, actually one is a film critic, the other is the blogger, quote-unquote Jeff Wells. No offence to any bloggers out there, but um, Jeff Wells is a problematic chap. Uh, on the gender front, um, th- this film is very heavily as being a film for men, like a kind of 1970s aftershave ad, like, are you man enough for the revenant? 
just these horrendous. Can you bear the revenants? <laughs> nice. Like, don't you know? This is not a this is not a film for women. You know, don't go to women. You know, are you a movie pussy? Says Peter Travers from Rolling Stone. Oh, did he really? Yeah. What a yeah. Like, wow. the first line, like, this is not for movie pussies. Oh, turn which puts um, <laughs> yes. which actually puts. You know, I mean, I felt that it put me in a really compromising position, um, and in a way, it was, it was. A, I felt that I was dared by nerd jocks to to watch this film, nerd and I really resent like it. Um, I really, I don't resent the film. As I said, there wasn't really much in the film for me personally, but I don't see that as a criticism of the film. I think that that's just my history with this particular director's work. Um, and again, I really underscore that I really admire his craft. Um, but this kind of broader discourse around it, is that it, was basically my takeaway message. I'm curious about this this whole critical uh, take on this too, uh, the, the very masculinist uh, take, because the, there was this confected outrage before the film even appeared, and I wonder how, how, oh, how bizarre bestially homophobic beer. this might be, that mm. there was this the whole business that DiCaprio may have been sexually assaulted by <laughs> one of his um, animal co-stars. And it's just so peculiar. It sounded like a joke that it went did. absurdly but wrong. It, it, it yeah. went. One of my favourite press interviews of the year was Di- DiCaprio denying it. Yeah, I mean, what, what's going on there? There's, there's definitely... Is it possible uh, to be raped by men, a CGI men, creation? Men. Uh, yeah. Men. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, a p- part of the promotion of this film has been they did it for real, they were out there for real, they suffered. DiCaprio actually r- ate that raw liver. In a mm. scene where there was a bonfire next to him, that scene <laughs> drove me nuts. I was like, dude, just cook it, you don't have to eat it raw. And I think this actually does tap into some of this very hyper-masculine promotion they were doing behind the scenes. This and idea of extreme cinema being for yep. men and not for women and are you man enough? I is, didn't hear this until after the film. It's actually. horrendous. Yeah. I mean, it was a horrendous experience for me. I was... I mean, the, the scene in question, actually, I mean, we're, you know, this, this issue of sexual violence, I think the most interesting thing about this famous bear attack... And it sounds like a really strange parallel, but there's a scene in Irreversible, a very, very famous scene in uh, Gaspar Noe's Irreversible, where there's a very long sexual assault happening uh, in a long subway. And at the back of the subway, in one moment, a man appears and then leaves. And I've spoken to so many people who have said that that's that's the bit of that film that upsets them the most. There's actually almost a parallel scene in The Bear Attack when a little baby bear comes in halfway through and just wanders off. I mean, this this kind of conscious parallels. I don't know whether it was conscious, but that was the moment that I thought, okay, this is this is actually dealing quite concretely in extreme cinema tropes. Both it's just not an extreme film. It's a really interesting western, like you yeah. said. I think it's a really solid, really solid genre film. You know, the kind of promotional machine surrounding it, cashing in on quote unquote extreme cinema, I found really problematic. And that has a long history in Hollywood cinema. And you think about the mythologizing that went with things like Apocalypse Now, where it's like the experience of the film blurs with the experience of making the film and even i mean i mentioned first blood stallone was was renowned and his films were renowned for doing this similar types of things like he he went on promotional campaigns talking about i i shaved with a straight razor and no soap because i wanted to get into the character of what it felt like to be john rambo so this is yeah there is a similar backstory that surrounds this film for sure you're listening to three triple r this is plato's cave we're doing a big catch-up show and we we had way more to talk about than we were planning so we're probably not going to get through everything you wanted to tonight but um, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. <laughs> Three triple R. Carol, that's the next film we're going to turn our attention to, and I think it's the the first film tonight that I think we are uniformly in this room or very much in awe and in love with. 
who wants to start the gush fest? Oh, do I? All right. Yeah, well, I'm happy to. I'm happy to gush away. Uh, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Since you've met Todd Haynes. Yeah, you're, you're the yeah, resident you Todd Haynes expert. <laughs> you bring the name drop. Uh, you dropped we it. Had, I had <laughs> no, <laughs> go there. Well, you can pick it up. Yeah, so, as I was saying to Todd the other day, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on your Todd, nice film. Todd is. Good work. Um, hey, no. Hey, <laughs> Look, it is a very gorgeous film. Uh, there is a certain iciness to it that is not... Uncommon in Haynes's cinema, uh, which perhaps re- reached its apogee with uh, Safe, probably still my favourite of his films. Uh, but this is up there. It's uh, such a such a gorgeous drama, so evocative of period and of a certain repressive atmosphere that just permeates the entire society. But um, of the time, what what most struck me with this was its yuletide setting and gave me lots of pause to consider whether Carol is in fact just one big Christmas Carol and thus is Kate Blanchett's character named that this is all kind of a fairy tale which of course in the truest grimmest fashion should not uh, spoiler alert end necessarily happily because it's a melodrama and what's a melodrama with a happy ending it's a sellout that's what <laughs> Um, or is it? Or is it? Discuss. <laughs> but in the, the true sense of melodrama, if, if mellow is uh, melos, I think it's from the Greek, uh, to, to do with melody and music, and drama is, uh, I think, Greek for drama. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, We're all oh, learning. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, is this getting too didactic? Um, yeah, drama is Greek for drama. It was didactic. Well, it might be Latin for drama, so don't quote me on that. Uh, but look, it's Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara gives... Great Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, um, doesn't she? Yeah, it's, yep. she's almost uncanny in some scenes. The class divide is uh, something that is not insurmountable uh, in the narrative, much as it uh, to this day still uh, isn't. It's all very relatable. This feels very much of a time, but also it has that timeless quality, and I think that's something that a, a period setting can actually bless a film with, that you can very much comment on the current day by setting something in the past. If um, and It needn't be uh, a lesbian love affair so much, any sort of forbidden love. Anyone can relate to this, I should think. I think everyone in this room related to this. Everyone is grinning, what I crying. Lo- what I love about Todd Haynes, he's, he kind of has two modes where he really mixes up film style and does very radical things, or films like this where he evokes previous film styles and yeah. filmmakers, but not in a showy, look-at-me replicating way, in a way that kind of takes the language of, say, with Far From Heaven of a Douglas Sirk film and makes it something modern. It still makes it his film and it's set... It's set in the past, but it's dealing with issues in a contemporary way that those older films could not do. And this is his brief encounter film, and he said quite blatantly that, you know, it's obvious. This film starts with a flash forward to how the film will end, and it's the same kind of scenario that Brief Encounter has at the end and and the start. And, like, in Brief Encounter, it's not a lesbian relationship, but it's another um, forbidden forbidden romance that has to be kept secret from society because of whatever public morales were around at the time. And that's what we see playing out in in, in Carol. Oh, I love this film, and, and but but you, there is a sort of icy coldness to it because I think that it is dealing with this idea of repressed emotions. I mean, this is almost a British film, like Brief Encounter is, in that it is all very about very much about repression, which is why the way the film ends, it gives you that release of some kind of emotional catharsis, which is like a big warm blanket that in engulf me that stayed with me for days and i think that is the sheer joy and brilliance of this film there's so i mean the source material alone i think patricia highsmith um is 
I mean, you know, we know from things like Strangers on a Train, the uh, talented Mr. Ripley, that, that you know she's she's got f- good form for film adaptation. Um, melodrama, I think, is the key is the key word here. I think it's very very difficult to do melodrama not just well but really intelligently. And Cirque is such an important. Obviously, when you're talking about Haynes, Cirque is going to come up, but also Fazbinder. I think yeah. that there's this really yeah. shrewd tradition where where Haynes. Um, not just as a as a craftsman, he understands melodrama, but also there's a really intuitive passion for it. I think that he really knows that as a um, as a as a communication mode, melodrama can do things that other kinds of films can't do. Uh, I really admire smart melodrama because I think we see it so rarely. Um, and I think that it can just fall into cliche and become cloying just so easily. And this film avoids that partially, I mean, obviously a large part, I think, because of its remarkable performances. I'm not a Kate Blanchett hater, but I'm also not a fan. But I think um, John Edmund from the Queensland Film Festival pointed out that her physical form is used so well. She's like a, she's like a praying mantis in this film. Her screen presence is just diabolical. I mean, the the nuances going on, the use of the colour red. I think when I left that left the cinema, that that was the that was the thing that stayed with me was how such a film, this icy sense, this kind of cold sense, how that clashes with this remarkable use of the colour red. How do you make red do that on film? Just from a a kind of aesthetic angle, it just blew my mind. I just adored this film. It almost it was one of those cases that it kind of ruined a lot of film afterwards and that it just sort of set the bar so high. Yeah, I have endless admiration for Todd Haynes, even though Carol's probably not my favourite of his films on a first viewing. I, I always go back to Velvet Goldmine. I think that's extraordinary. But, you know, his use of colour, I mean, from a visual design, from a sound perspective, technically I think he's an extraordinary talent. Mm. Um, I, I just wanted to pick up on the, the point um, you made, uh, Alex, about Kate Blanchett. I often struggle with her sometimes and her performances occasionally, and I think part of that is I often find her very performative it's that sort of capital a acting yeah it's the it's the it's you can sense her the way in which she performs on stage on screen which doesn't always translate well but i think haynes has been quite canny in the way in he in which he uses blanchett here because when you apply that performative sensibility to a woman who's hiding in plain sight it actually really works to what the film is exploring in terms of sexuality and she's a strong enough performer to then break from that and those moments where we start to see the contrast between the the public persona of the Blanchett character and the private persona in those scenes with Rooney Mara is really extraordinary it's, and it's so subtle too and I think that's what really champions this film it's it's an immense work of incredible subtlety. Todd Haynes is a really big semiotics and, and symbolism guy and, and that could be painful if he wasn't so if he, if he didn't have such a good aesthetic appreciation for cinema but such um, love. he has such love for, for, mm-hmm. for film so you get these great films but it's so loaded with this kind of symbolism and very much aware of how narrative plays out throughout film history how sexuality has been presented in film history and gender and class and it's it's all in this film it, think, it's fantastic i think there's one other key thing to note and that's actually how much like film this film looks like uh, it's all shot on 16 mm. mil and you can see the grain Is this 16 mil it really? was shot on 16 oh, wow and you can so see the grain in, in the image throughout. And I've been missing seeing the grain. I'm, um, I mean, I love film. I love celluloid. Uh, I, I love pack a bong for the grain. I, I totally <laughs> pack a bong for the grain. It's lovely. The whole the image is alive. It's all, all the little pixels are swirling away, vibrating furiously, and it just makes me very happy. 
Carol. He's still on general release through Transmission Films. Let's turn our attention to something very different now, which is The Big Short. This is a film that took me really by surprise. I mean, amazing cast. I was looking forward to it with some curiosity. It's directed by Adam McKay, who until now has made Will Ferrell comedies, many of which are really, really good Will Ferrell comedies, but I wasn't expecting him to do such an energetic, entertaining, funny and enraging film about the GFC that helped me understand exactly what went down and how we're still getting screwed by these people in in america uh this was a sensational film i love the kind of manic energy of of the big short an absolute surprise i mean i kind of went in just knowing that it was supposedly a serious drama by it from a, a director who as you mentioned has mostly worked in comedies and some great comedies step brothers you know, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely discuss and, and this <laughs> the script of this film is actually quite radical it's it, it's surprising in a contemporary hollywood context given the, the the budget for this film on the, on the actors alone got greenlit because I think it's a really daring script in terms of its tonal shifts and I think tonal shifts particularly when you're dealing with, with serious drama and kind of fourth breaking the fourth wall comedy is really dangerous and I think it takes a talented filmmaker to be able to pull that off but McKay does there's some some really clever uses of comic breaks in this film and also as you mentioned the way in which it doesn't dumb down but it explains and recontextualizes a lot of the stuff that was going on that led up to the global financial crisis in a way that some really impressive documentaries like The Inside Job mm. um, haven't even been able to do. And I thought, this film just seemed to tick all the boxes. Yeah, this this really caught me off guard and was one of the, the absolute joys of the end of last year. Yeah, I enjoyed it tremendously too. I just saw an all-star cast film about global financial crisis. It's probably going to be quite dry. And it turned out to be anything but. It's very smart, very knowing, and, and has uh, takes great glee in occasionally going outside of itself to present a little explanatory interlude or two. Uh, variously from Australian ex-soapy stars in a bath to um, uh, interesting combinations of people who are known to be um, knowledgeable in this field uh, next to pop stars. And it's it's a ride. It's, uh, it all hangs together extraordinarily well. It's brilliantly scripted and it was absolutely not anything of the sort of what I had prepared myself for. So uh, mad props to all involved. That's the big short that's still on general release through Paramount Pictures. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Another divisive film, actually. We've touched upon a number of issues, I think, tonight that are going to apply to this, sort of in terms of expectations versus outcome, being on board with the film for so long and then it losing you, uh, the somewhat over-the-top critical reaction from some quarters that have suggested that this film is beyond criticism. I'm curious to know what you will look for. What it's worth, I loved the first half of this film. I went to the big roadshow presentation at the Astor Theatre where we had the overture that we just heard. You saw the first half, intermission and second half. And the first half I thought was one of the most superbly, tightly controlled, constructed sort of sort of intense piece of theatrical tension building with these glorious ensemble of characters who come together under mysterious circumstances and you know that they've all got mischievous intent and um, and aren't who they say they are. And then I was just enormously let down by the second half, which seemed to squander this amazing setup. It just became a kind of schlocky, low-rent George Romero film. Uh, no discredit to George Romero when I say that, <laughs> but that, that's not the film that I thought this was building up to be. And I'm a big Tarantino fan, but this film really 
really lost me in the second. I still liked it, but it really left me feeling a bit cheated by how it evolved in the second half. My main problem with this film, and I, I too really enjoyed the first half and still quite enjoyed the second, but felt that the second half especially went into sort of greatest hits territory for Tarantino. I felt... Well, I mean, we've known from day one he's been cannibalising all of the cinema that he loves for to make his own films, and it's all rich in cinephilia and, and a lot of genuine film love, but this is the first film where I've really felt he's actually cannibalising his own work. And I was just feeling that, say, scenes like Samuel Jackson and Bruce Dern verbally sparring with lots of uh, uh, heavy racial um, abuse thrown into uh, that particular exchange that could easily have been Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper in True Romance. Um, other scenes in there were very... Rem- oh, well, actually, the whole second half is basically Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs. dogs yeah. So it's, it's, I really felt that he, he just needs to look farther afield once again. It's not like he's um, starved for reference points to make a new film on in some new uh, generic direction altogether. I mean, there are still some genres he hasn't really mined yet for a film. He claims perhaps he's only got two more in him. Uh, I think he should let the western go and just move on and get on with his life (laughs) that was oddly cutting it was very polite but look quentin tarantino is is a cult film director um in very much the truest sense of the word in that if you haven't drunk the kool-aid there's not much going on and i've never i have i have no qualms with tarantino i realize he's a very important director to a lot of people particularly of a certain generation i think he was a really formative introductory point to a lot of self-identifying cinephiles and certainly to a lot of film critics. So I'm not going to diss him. I just never drank the Kool-Aid. I've never really found any kind of pleasure in a, in a Tarantino film. They're just too talky for me. I just want people... For somebody that is renowned as a visual stylist, there's just so much talking and I just want people to be quiet and just show me some things. You know, this amazing DOP, Robert Richardson, who's done not just work with Tarantino, but Scorsese, Errol Morris, John Sayles... So much going on in the in the production design here. The music, my goodness, the music. Morricone, give me more Morricone. Even the use of things like the um, the John Carpenter score, the um, older Morricone music from The Thing and Exorcist 2. I love that he used the uh, David Hess music from oh. Last House on the Left. I thought that was gorgeous. But, you know, you start off with this amazing opening sequence, which is just uh, I mean, undeniably beautiful, and this incredible Morricone soundtrack. And then... We're less than 20 minutes in and we've, we've got the white stripes. It's like going to Vue de Monde and having them giving you tomato sauce. It's like, what's going on? There's too much going on. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Maybe this is just left over from my mop fury. Tarantino's just not a director for me. I so struggled with Michael Madsen in this film as well. I tell you, he's only in there so that people who've seen Tarantino's previous film can feel anxious about his presence. So he's just there for the sake of misdirection for people who already love Tarantino. And for me, that just undoes a whole lot of suspense as well. Um, we don't have time to give my entire rant about this film, but different to you, Alex, I've been a staunch defender of Tarantino for quite some time. This is the film that has me questioning the faith because I really struggle with him on a number of issues, not just narrative and structure and dialogue, but particularly race and gender, which I thought were incredibly problematic, incredibly worthy of debate, and that debate is increasingly being shut down by people who say, no, you're wrong. Well, people saying, but this is a Tarantino film. By not addressing it, that's his statement, which I think is bollocks, because previous films have addressed race and gender, which is why the laziness in this film is so disappointing. Yeah, look, I know, I think think you're right. There are are moments in this film I love, but, yeah, look, I, I think overall... I've been told I, I should watch it again by a few people, so <laughs> we'll wait and see if I ever do. I'm going to watch Carol again. How about that? Yeah, good. Let's just all go and watch Carol again. <laughs> we'll, we'll all have a wonderful time. 
You have been listening to the very first 2016 episode of Plato's Cave. We got through not nearly the number of films we were, we were hoping to, but I, I hope you all enjoyed the discussion we've had on, 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 on these films that are out in the cinema now. These are all films that are, are still out. I should just no, mention I think we it. we did enjoy it, Thomas. We uh, did. Good, yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. The Hateful yeah. Eight... <laughs> No, I didn't mention The Hateful Eight is on general release through Roadshow Films. We're going to come back next week and do a whole bunch more of films for you. We didn't get to talk to the Danish girl. Cerise has got a lot to say about that. Danish fucking... <laughs> <laughs> look, look up Cerise's article on The Age. Uh, Room and Spotlight are a couple of other films we're going to touch on. But look, we'd better get out of here. You've been listening to Thomas, Alex, Josh and Cerise. You're on Plato's Cave. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.